one thing that Doug told me when I started is there's a lot of things that we would like to happen. The one thing that has to happen is we can't open if we don't have any employees. <laughs> uh, and we took that to heart. I like to tell our employees when they start, you know, we don't have 3,000 feet of vertical. We don't get 500 inches of snow in a year. We have to offer good customer service. Um, and we need to offer that seven nights a week. Nothing is more embarrassing to me than if uh, we would have to close or couldn't offer a product because I just, it's there, but I don't have an employee to do it. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. We are back in Pennsylvania today for the third time on the storm. Before we get into that, a reminder, as always, to please sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid subscription options, and I lay them all out on the website. After March 14th, becoming a paid subscriber will be the only way to guarantee that you will get 100% of the Storm's content. The price will also go up that day, so now is the time to upgrade. This is obviously a huge change for the storm and one that I put a ton of thought and planning into. The response so far has been really positive and I'm feeling really good about the decision. So thank you to everyone who has joined that paid tier so far. We are in the midst of the 2022 to 23 season pass launch season. So for any of you who know the storm, you know this is like my Super Bowl and you are going to want to get in on the newsletter in one form or another as I break down that entire universe in exhaustive detail. For breaking news, you can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Stormski Journal. All right, here we go with my partners. First up, Spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable. Meaning, if we send it too hard, we are just one crash away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention, less time spent on the slopes. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and this is a new one, Icon Pass, and many more to offer Spot injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back in their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win-win for your resort and for your guests. Skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you can shred with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 dropped on my doorstep recently, and it is just incredible. Photo galleries exploring the Cascades, house skiing in my home city, New York City. Essays on snowboarding is Zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. 
There's even a little crash course on the amazing Coyote. And of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man at Isaac underscore Gardner on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Ski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogie. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. End quote. Don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 77, Andrew Halmy, General Manager of Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. I know what you're thinking. Bro, a two-hour podcast? Why is this conversation with the general manager of a 350 vertical foot Pennsylvania ski area longer than Gone with the Wind? I'll tell you why. It's long because it's good. It's one of the best conversations I've hosted on this podcast. And the story of Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh is really remarkable. And I think you're really going to love it. I won't belabor it because yes, this is a long one. Let's go. My guest today is the general manager of Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh in Pennsylvania. Mount Pleasant has 10 trails and a 340-foot vertical drop served by a triple chair and a J-bar. The mountain often leads all Pennsylvania ski areas in snowfall with an annual average of 150 inches of snow. He has worked at the mountain since 2006 and has also spent time as an environmental engineering technician and hydrologic technician. Andrew Halmy is my guest. Andrew, we've been working on this one for a really long time. So glad we could finally make it happen. Yeah, absolutely, Stuart. I'm glad we could get together. So let's start here. How is the season going, both for Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh as a ski area and for you? Yeah, so it, uh, it started off in November, early December. It looked like we were going to get rolling early. We had some, some natural snow. We had a lot of good snowmaking temperatures early. Um, then the end of December, it really warmed up. We had some mechanical issues we had to deal with, and, and uh, we didn't get open until January 7th, unfortunately. Um, so, but after January, it started to snow and it didn't stop for all of January. So <laughs> snow was good. Um, it's warmed up a little bit here now, but we're, we still have a couple weeks of skiing left. So, so far it's been good. You know, it seems like every time I look at your Instagram and by the way, for everyone listening, if you don't follow Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh's Instagram, it's one of the better small ski area accounts, honestly, in the entire country. It's consistent. It's fun. It's cool. The joy of the ski area is obvious in it, and that is run by you, Andrew, I believe. So every time I look at it, it seems like it's snowing. So so talk a little bit about just how nice that's been to have that kind of season, and, and also just talk a little bit about your social and how you run that and how you use that as a platform for the ski area. Yeah, so the, the natural snow that we've gotten has been great, um, and it's great on a lot of levels. You know, uh, I see it directly as soon as it starts snowing. Uh, the phone starts ringing here at the ski area. The website traffic's up. Um, but it also obviously translates to good skiing. You know, um, 
Uh, we'll discuss it a little bit later, but we have five primary slopes that we ski on, and then we have five secondary slopes that are all natural terrain. Um, we got almost six weeks of skiing on those other slopes this year, which is really unheard of as of uh, lately. So it's been nice to be able to ski on that. You know, it's it leaves a good surface. You know, it's easy to groom. It's easy to maintain when you have good natural snow. Um, plus, the people have snow in their yards, and they 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 come out in force. Which is great. <laughs> That's right, the backyard effect. Talk a little bit about that Instagram account, Andrew, and and that that seems to be your baby. Just talk about that and how you run that and how that works for the ski area. Yeah. So um, one of the many jobs that I have is I run all the social media. Um, I'd gladly hand it over if I could find somebody who would be <laughs> as dedicated to it. Um, but it, it, it is fun, though. I wish I could get out and, and snap some more pictures of it. Um, I, but as I, I try to post there as frequently as I can. Um, it's definitely a, a vector for us to, to grow the business and to get people engaged. Um, I see it directly. You know, When the social media posts are popular, the, the people are showing up. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely something that we utilize as a tool a lot. Um, and, and it's fun. You know, I, I do enjoy it. Um, being the general manager, I get to talk to a lot of people, but I get to interact with a lot of people on there. And I'm not sure they know who it is all the time, which is kind of fun. Um, so whenever people are answering questions or, or asking questions on the social media end of things, it's always myself, um, which is fun. You know, it's you get a lot of, we at Mount Pleasant get a lot of people who have never skied or snowboarded in their entire life. So we get a lot of really strange questions on there sometimes. <laughs> um, but it's fun. It's enjoyable. Uh, um, the only thing I wish I could do, Stuart, is get out on the mountain and get some more pictures of people actually skiing instead of me standing at the bottom of the chairlift looking up. <laughs> well, you know, Andrew, you, you like I said, you do a really good job with the Instagram. And, and it's not easy to do a good job with social. I, I think it's it's easy to do it and to just throw some stuff up there, but to actually tell a story and and convey the atmosphere of the ski area into a short form feed is is pretty hard. And and you do a really good job, which leads me to my next question. And not to give you more to do because I know you have no shortage of things <laughs> to do, but I would love to see you on Twitter because Twitter, though it has a reputation as a rat hole, ski Twitter is actually a pretty positive place from my experience. And I always am, am talking about Mount Pleasant and calling it out. And I, I'm trying to at you and it's not on there. I'd love to see you get into the mix. Have you thought about Twitter? Yeah, I've thought about it, Stuart. Um, and again, like you said, it's just another it's another app on my phone that I need to do and, and update. <laughs> um, I do like that as much as I, I being a small ski area, I'm all for small business. So the, the Instagram, Facebook conglomerate is is difficult sometimes yeah. but it's convenient that i post to one they post to the other and mm -hmm. um twitter is just something i'm not super familiar with um but i i i think it's something that i need to do at, at some point in the future love to see it i'll you let me know when you get on there andrew and i will help spread the word you, you mentioned that you would like to get out on the hill more and when i came and stopped in and saw you in late january that was only we went up and we, we skied a few runs together and you mentioned that those were really some of your first turns of the year. So obviously you have a lot going on, right? So, so just talk about what it means to be the general manager at a place like Mount Pleasant and how many hats you have to wear 
and how much that keeps how how busy that keeps you from November to April every year. Yeah, it it's busy. <laughs> um, so being a small ski area, uh, the general manager is kind of a catch-all for everything. You know, um, uh, from plowing the parking lot to shoveling the driveway to keeping the fire going. Um, there's a there's a lot of things that happen. Um, a lot of prep work that that nobody sees beforehand. You know, from snow making to getting the chairlift ready to all the maintenance on all the equipment. Um, making sure the lodge is ready to go. There, there's a million things that have to happen um, that I'm very much involved in. Um, you know, and then uh, from the day-to-day operations, you know, making sure hiring all of the employees. Um, that's one of the responsibilities that I take on. Um, making sure that all the managers have all the tools that they need to operate every day. Um, and then, you know, there's... Being a small ski area, there's there's still things every day. Something pops up that surprises me that I have to deal with. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, whether we run out of rentals to an issue with the tube park to an issue with the chairlift or something in the kitchen. Um, every it's almost daily. You could point out and say, okay, this is what happened that I did not expect <laughs> to deal with today. All right, so you're obviously keeping busy day to day, and you know that that's a good thing. That's a position that. Uh, that that we all would rather be in than having nothing to do. But let's rewind a little bit here, Andrew. How long have you actually been skiing at Mount Pleasant, and when did you first start working there? So I started uh, skiing here when I was just three years old. Wow. Um, I'm fortunate enough. I grew up um, and still live. Just uh, I, I think my commute is eight minutes to get here. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's great. Um, but I remember, um, you know, when I first started back when I started, it was. Uh, member owned and oh, it was named Mountain View. Um, but I remember stepping out onto the bench in the, the same rental shop that we have today and, and getting these straight old Elon skis that were all scratched up and painted over and whatnot <laughs> that they, they kept in service for probably 10 years longer than they really needed to. Um, and then riding up the T-bar with my dad. you know. Right. So I've been here a long time. So take us back to to that era, Andrew, what did Mount Pleasant look like? Just lay this out for us. What, what were the lifts? What did the trail system look like? Just paint that picture for us of, of, of three-year-old Andrew at Mount Pleasant or Mountain View as it was known at the time. Yeah. So, um, a lot has, has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. You know, the, the trail layout was, was essentially the same. Um, you know, the, the only thing, that we added in early 2000 uh, was the tube park and we rearranged the bottom area there. But besides that, you know, the trail network was the same. Um, we added a chairlift since then, but the, the lodge has remained very similar. Um, there's a lot of things that we have upgraded since then that a lot of people struggle to see. And that's a lot of infrastructure. Um, the most obvious is the chairlift, but, you know, we've added miles of pipe and high voltage electric for snowmaking. And there's a lot that's that people on the surface really can't see. Um, so it looks the same to a lot of people. Uh, but but a lot has changed. So when you were a kid, though, there were no chairlifts there. It was all T-bars? Yeah, all T-bars. So when I first started, um, or when I first started skiing, we had, we operated two T-bars. Um, one of them, 
uh, two T-bars and a J-bar. The, uh, the J-bar being the beginner hill and the T-bar servicing all the terrain. Um, as the as winter started to change, the snow on the what we call the, the dark side, affectionately known as, um, <laughs> it was difficult to, to keep snow over there and unreliable. Um, and as the snow became unreliable, the maintenance for the chair or the T-bar became unreliable as well when it was member owned. Um, so we came to a point where they just didn't operate that T-bar anymore, mostly because he couldn't ski it. Uh, and as a fact that, that the T-bar is now inoperable there. Uh, but we, we were able to make snow on the main T-bar um, somewhat limitedly. Uh, it was a, a very antiquated snowmaking system as until late. Right. Uh, but it was fun though. You know, it was, it was kind of nostalgic in a way, you know, the T-bar goes up through the woods. Um, uh, and it was a lot of fun. You know, I grew up here as a kid and, and we had a blast here. So you grew up there, you have really good memories of the place, the infrastructure woes or, or inadequate old infrastructure is not really your problem at that point. But at some point you started working for the ski area. When was that? And what was your first job? So I, I started, and I forget now, I think it was 2004, <laughs> 2005 okay. um, as a ski instructor. Um, so we were just teaching lessons um, and it was a, it was a blast. You know, there wasn't really a care in the world except going out there and teaching kids how to ski. Um, and it, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed that. And I still very much keep my hand in the, the ski school even till today. So you started as a ski instructor. Was that a high school job, a college job, after college? And then what did you do after that at the ski? Yeah, so I started. I started as a ski instructor when I was fourteen years old. Wow. Um, so I was I was in high school when I started uh, as a ski instructor. Um, I joined National Ski Patrol in two thousand seven, um, and in two thousand eight, I took what would be my first management, and I uh, was the weekend ski school director. And how long did you do that? And then just kind of take us up through your time at Mount Pleasant, Andrew. So, so you were ski school director and then you eventually worked your way up to a, a job as part-time GM and then full-time. So take us through that whole progression. Yeah. So starting in 2008, um, I, I graduated high school in 2008 and that's when I was the weekend ski school director. Uh, I ran the ski school all through college um, in addition to, you know, all sorts of various roles, whether it be um, the snowmaking, social media, web development, um, you name it. And I, I helped out in it. Um, social media, it just, um, I just kind of started doing it one day and <laughs> right. took off to where I'm at now. Um, you know, I, all, I, even in high school, I helped out making snow when I could. Um, you know, it was a, a very, uh, <laughs> it's a labor intensive job and we really only have one snowmaker. Oh, wow. Uh, so I, I try to help him out as much as I, I try to help now as much as I can. And I did then as well. Um, but I, as I, as I kept, uh, staying here longer, I just kept adding more jobs. Um, you know, I, I took over management of the rental shop. Um, I helped out a lot at the ticket sales. Um, and eventually I, I, I could do it all. And then, 2019, I became the general manager on a part-time basis, um, and then eventually that we turned that into a full-time position in November of 2022. 
So what did that mean exactly? I, when you were a part-time general manager, did, did that mean you pretty much only worked in the winter and then took the summer off to do other things? And then I guess the follow-up question is, how did the ski area finally decide, okay, we need more Andrew. We need a full-time general manager to just make sure that everything's locked in throughout the year. Yeah. So um, until, until November, I worked various uh, full-time jobs. You know, um, I, I worked in Pittsburgh for five years even, which is an hour and a half down the road. Wow. Um, and I still came home on the weekends to, to do everything I could. Um, so it, it, it started to evolve into, into, into the position, I, I should say, you know, I, I gradually acquired more, more duties. Um, and until, until that time, it, I wouldn't say it warranted a, a full-time person, you know, we were, we were, we were growing and growing slowly, um, and just kind of, kind of chugging along. I did a lot of stuff all year round, um, but primarily in the winter, you know, there was, we, we do some various summer events and, there's all sorts of projects that you have to do in a ski area for, for maintenance in the summer that I helped out with. Um, my, my main, my main duties as when I was part-time general manager was winter, obviously from, from October on getting ready for, uh, getting the ski school ready, making sure the rental shops ready, making sure all the supplies are in place, ready to pull the trigger and open. Um, what really kind of, uh, put me into the full-time role, um, fortunately or unfortunately was, uh, the pandemic. Uh, we saw a surge in business last season. Um, and we really felt that we needed to capitalize on that business. Um, and hence here I am in a full-time job. You know, we, we, we grew our business so much during the, the pandemic that we really didn't want to, we wanted to make sure that those people one come back. And if they do come back, that they get the same experience that they did before. Um, and I felt, think we've been able to really do that. Yeah. When you think back on the 2020 to 21 ski season and the lead up to that, no one really knew what to expect. And as it turns out, it was one of the biggest ski seasons in the history of the country. Have you been able to carry that momentum over into the 2021 to 22 ski season? Yeah. Um, to take a step back, you know, um, in March of 2020, uh, we closed on the 15th of March. Um, and I had planned myself to finally go on a little ski trip and, uh, oh. and go somewhere that week. Oh, bummer. Um, and, and yeah, it was just like two days later and the whole, the whole world shut down. Oh. Um, so we were fortunate enough that we, we weren't impacted by the shutdown itself. You know, we, we closed on, on our own terms. Um, but after that, you know, it, it was, there was some, some strange things, you know, we, um, we seriously debated whether we were going to open uh, for the 2020 uh, 21 season. Oh, wow. Uh, and very seriously debated. You know, as a small ski area, um, we have to put a lot of capital forward to get the ski area open. Uh, a lot of ski making, or snow making, um, a lot of investments in, in maintenance and whatnot. Our concern was, you know, we were going to put a lot of investment forward, make all this snow. Um, and then we, we need to be open to recoup that cost. Our concern was we're going to put all this forward. And then come January, um, we were going to be a, a mandated shutdown again or something like that. And at that point, you know, we'd have to refund season pass holders and after school programs. And, you know, <laughs> there is no money. 
it's uh it's white stuff on the side of the hill you know, so they, they can come and bring it home with them if they want but there's um um so our, we had major concerns that you know if we opened we were going to be shut down and if we shut down it might not just be for the year it, it might have been a permanent shutdown um mm-hmm. oh, no. uh, so it, it was a little scary when but we said you know we might as well do it <laughs> uh, uh things in um October, November, when we decided, hey, you know, let's, uh, I think we can make this happen. The pandemic seemed to be slowing down a little bit. Um, and of course, it seemed like as soon as we pulled the trigger and said, yes, we're going to open, um, it, it really got into full swing December, January, February. Yeah. Um, but we, we made it um, and we made the most of it. You know, it, it was strange. You know, we, we had to adapt because of it. Um, but on the flip side, people came out because they wanted to get outside. You know, it was a, it was something unique because we've had busy, we were busy before, um, and you know, thinking we'll have to manage crowds, make sure people are social distancing in the lodge and in the lift line. Um, our business increased again to the point where it, during COVID, where it's man, it's difficult to manage all these people. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, you're echoing some of the themes that I'm hearing from a lot of operators. And that's that there was really this big silver lining to COVID and that it really drove this outdoor boom, really reignited a lot of folks interest in skiing, made them when they got out there, they realized or remembered what they were missing and wanted to continue it. So as you as you look forward to Mount Pleasant Edinburgh's future, how much of a turning point? do you think that was the, the, the COVID related outdoor boom was to just really making this a Mount Pleasant, a sustainable ski area indefinitely? It was big. You know, I think, um, we had turned the corner on ourselves and our infrastructure and whatnot that we could open reliably despite what mother nature throws at us. Um, but people didn't know that, you know, um, when it was member owned as Mountain View, and we'll discuss a little bit later, um, it the it, we had unfortunately developed a reputation of a, a place with poor skiing and unreliable conditions. Um, we had overcame that, and it, people just didn't know yet. Um, with with the pandemic, people came out and came out in force and said, "Hey, you know, the skiing here is pretty dang good." Um, which was great. You know, um, we were fortunate enough that, uh, the, the conditions were pretty good last year. It was a, it was a down snow year, but it was fairly cold. So we were able to keep snow on the hill consistently and and offer a consistently good product, which helped as well. Um, so yeah, uh, people, people were able to come out and say, Hey, you know, they have something to offer here. Let's take advantage of it. Um, and it's been great. You know, we, we've, we've grown our business considerably because of it. So I feel as though, uh, it was kind of the spark we needed per se. You know, we had everything in place here. Um, we just needed the people to show up in force and they did. So let's talk about how you got there a little bit, because you're right. The, the ski areas that survived are the ones who invested in infrastructure, who swallowed the need to make those big capital improvements and and thought long term right and not just just you know is it going to snow next week or not and am i going to make it so let's talk about the people who helped make that happen because obviously 
you have this big job now as a head of the resort. But we, when we were skiing together on the chairlift rides up and down, you, you were telling me about a lot of the leaders that you worked with over the years at Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh and their commitment to the mountain and what you learned from them. So just talk about some of those folks who helped put you in a position to lead Mount Pleasant into this very bright future that you now have. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people. I mean, we've been here since 1970. So this is our, our 54th season. There's been a, a lot of people who have sown seeds here to, to make it a sustainable place. Um, you know, the, the, the main person in particular who has poured his heart and soul literally into this place, uh, is our owner, Doug. Um, and he has a, he has a passion for, for not just the sport, but particular Mount Pleasant. Um, and he's been here, you know, we've been here since 1970, our owner now, he's been here since 1974 or five, I believe. Um, and he started off kind of doing the same thing. You know, he was, he was a lift operator. He was putting people on T bars um, and helping out with maintenance and whatnot. Um, and, and he's been here ever since. Uh, uh, and he's had a he's been a, a huge mentor in that part. Um, he has a vision for here that we and I we both share now. Um, and it, it used to be as a as a ski instructor or as in the early days of my young management career, I used to get real frustrated. It's like, why can't we just, why can't we just do this? You mm-hmm, know, right. we, we have a goal. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and I see now <laughs> it's definitely, uh, um, it's a little bit different now. You know, I, I see the, I see why we were, why the, the slowdown, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you know, there, there, there's a goal, but I see the reasoning behind it now. So, <laughs> you know, Doug's been here forever and, and he's literally put his, heart and soul and, and sweat and tears into the place. He's been, he's been a, a huge influence, uh, not on just my career, but the ski area here in general. So you mentioned when you first started skiing there as a child, the ski area was member owned. It was called Mountain View. So take us from that point up to Doug's ownership. And I believe there were some pretty rough years in between there. So lay that out for us. Yeah. So prior even to um, the resort being member owned, uh, we were formerly Mount Pleasant. So um, we opened in uh, December of uh, 1970 as Mount Pleasant. Um, and, and it operated through uh, the late 80s as Mount Pleasant. Um, and, and like you said, a lot of ski areas saw the need and bit the bullet and invested in infrastructure. Um, we really didn't. (laughs) Um, and I wasn't here. I don't, I wasn't even born, so I don't know why. Um, uh, but you know, as, as things changed, other ski areas invested in snowmaking systems and upgraded lifts and whatnot. Um, when Doug and Laura, uh, bought the ski area or inherited per se, the ski area in, in 2005, 2006, um, the infrastructure was nearly identical as it was to 1970. Um, so yeah, so we, it started off as mountain our Mount Pleasant in, in the seventies, eighties, um, Mount Pleasant went belly up in 1989, I believe 1990, 91, somewhere in there, right, right around 1990. Um, and it was taken over by Mountain View and it was a, a member owned group. Uh, so it was a group of volunteers. It was actually 
um, we were modeled off of the Buffalo Ski Club, just okay. outside of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the bylaws, everything like that, it was uh, almost a copy and paste from the <laughs> Buffalo Ski Club. Okay. Um, and, and it operated like that through uh, through Doug and Laura's ownership in 2005. But there was some really, really lean years. Um, like I said, the snowmaking infrastructure was was poor at best. Um, there was some upgrades, but it was still it was still very difficult to get snow onto the hill. Um, all we had to move snow, and I, I shouldn't even say move snow, just to groom snow, was a, an old tucker. Um, so it was it was difficult to get by. There were seasons where we had, uh, looking back in the books, there was one year where we had just 28 days of skiing. Wow. And that's that's tough to be sustainable at that point. Um, I hear stories of when the, the you know the the membership board would get together, and they would uh, they'd sit down and and in the fall and they'd all throw five bucks on the table, <laughs> so they can buy stamps to mail out membership packets for the wow. next year because wow. there was no money. Um, nice. and, and the you know they they were able to to limp it together uh, by passion from the community. You know, people people do really enjoy this place, um, and and people kept it going because of that passion. Um, but unfortunately, it never grew to the point where it could grow. You know, um, like I said, when Doug and the Mount, Mountain View was going to go belly up in, I think it was two thousand five. Doug and Laura um, stepped in and and purchased it and started from there building the infrastructure up, uh, to, to build a ski area. But I think I view it as at that point, you were as close to starting a ski area from scratch as you could be. Really? You know, we had, a we had one T-bar that didn't work at all and hadn't been inspected in years. Mm. We had, uh, two, two Palma lifts. One was the Palma T-bar. One was the Palma J-bar that were purchased new in 1970. Wow. And that was about it. <laughs> you know, so they had there hadn't been a lot of upgrades to them. Um, you know, there were there was times when the when I remember, you know, you'd go out there and shift wheels would break and T bars would break and it was just a it was almost you were starting from scratch. There was yeah. a hill here with some trails and, and a and a meager means to get up the slope, but that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanna talk about how they approach this and how they've upgraded the hill because the hill now is really nice and i was was frankly really surprised by what i found when i went out there but but before we get to that let's just talk a little bit more about doug and laura because you know the the way that you describe them as these folks who came in and bought the ski area listeners might get the impression that these are you know local business people or, or 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 some sort of uh uh you know rich benefactors but in in fact they're school teachers is that right yeah so um Doug was an industrial arts teacher at a local high school, and and Laura was a school psychologist with a with a local school. Um, so by no means they're uh, <laughs> they're business owners or anything like that. They just uh, they had a passion and they they wanted to see it continue. Um, yeah, so they both had been kind of ingrained in the ski area for a while. Uh, both um, were Doug had been here since the seventies. Laura started in the eighties as a as a national ski patroller. Um, and then also as part of, uh, uh, Mountain View as well. Um, 
so yeah, they're they're definitely. I like to call it, you know, your traditional mom and pop ski area. You know, they they took over, and and Doug does all the maintenance outside, all the snowmaking, all the grooming. Laura um, does everything inside, ticket sales, everything like that. Your your true classic mom and pop ski area. But no, they they um they took over, and um, they've literally put all their all their heart and soul into the place since then. And, and it's really turned into something that we can be proud of. Um, beforehand, it, 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 we were proud of our, of our little ski area, but we had a joke, you know, we, it was kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies here. You know, it was, uh, it was definitely a community run organization that, that needed some guidance and needed, needed some input. Um, you know, there was, there was days where where we had to put hay bales out on the mud to get from the lodge door to the slope so you didn't track mud either in the right. lodge or in the slope you know <laughs> um we we would get pallets out from the woods and 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 put carpets on top of the pallets to get over the water to get out <laughs> into the to the ski area so it, wow. it was um it's it's been fun because it's come a long way since then so just to continue this strain on Doug and Laura, so they, they from what we talked about, the, all, all the efforts that you're describing, they're still working, I believe, and then doing all this on the side, pouring everything they have into it. And you made this comment to me when we were skiing together. They've never taken a dollar out of the place. Is that true? And they've just put everything back into the ski area and evolving the ski area? Yeah, since 2006, um, any penny that we ever were able to, per- to make um, they immediately return back to the ski area. So, um, yeah, there's been, there's been no return to them personally. Um, and everything that they do here goes right back. Um, they don't even draw a salary or an income for their hours that they're here. You know, they're, they're, they've, re- they both retired when they, they, when they started, they were both working still. Um, they retired shortly after because they realized they couldn't do it and uh and operate um but no they've they've been not only have they been able to to turn the profits that we that we make in uh back into the ski area but the first couple years um it wasn't profits that we were making you know they had the the uh spring would come the snow would melt and it was uh okay how much money do we have to spend of our own money to make sure that the t-bar spins again yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I have a, I, I have a, a ton of respect for what, what Doug and Laura have been able to do for this place. Um, without their leadership that we, we certainly wouldn't be here today. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable, Andrew. And I, I don't think that anyone would begrudge them if they did want to profit a little bit from all of their hard work. I think certainly that's the sort of economy we live in, but just, and I don't want to put you in the position of speaking for them, but just from your point of view, when you see that and, and you see these folks who have given so much to the community and asked for so little in return, I mean, what what, what, is, what does that say to you about them and, and the legacy they're leaving and, and just kind of how, you know, what the rest of the ski community could learn from their example? Yeah, it's, it's something unique for sure. You know, I don't know if that exists anywhere across the country. Um, it's, a it's a, it shows how much of a passion they have for skiing and snowboarding and particular our community. 
um, we're, you were here and you saw, you know, it's a, our bread and butter is, is those under the age 18. You know, we have a lot of kids that come out here. Um, and I, I think the, the industry as a whole could kind of learn about it. You know, there's, there's maybe a little bit more to it than, than profiting, you know, the small ski areas are, are kind of the lifeblood, you know, we, we turn a lot of skiers around here and convert them to lifelong people. Um, and, and they view that as important. And so do I, and, um, that's why they really do it. You know, it's, it's a community asset, a community treasure. Um, and, and they've literally put <laughs> heart, soul, blood, tears, and money into it to, to keep us operating. And, and it, it's something truly unique across the ski industry, especially in today's ski industry, where it seems where it's very commercialized, um, something very unique that you don't see a whole lot of. And, and, um, it's, I see it and I know it happened, but even a lot of people across the community don't, don't still don't totally see what, what they've done here. It's, it's really admirable, Andrew. And I think it helps to answer my next question, but I'll lay it out anyway and let you respond to it. So if you look at Pennsylvania and kind of zoom out, it, it seems like the perfect state for skiing. It's cold. It has a lot of people. It has a lot of money, has a lot of hills and you know, it has this tradition of, of winter and skiing. However, there's not that many ski areas in relation to the population. There's 28 functioning ski areas in Pennsylvania. Six of those are private, little bumps usually that are part of a housing development or something else. 22 of them are public. They're actually pretty big. You have places like Seven Springs and Whitetail and Montage and, um, and Camelback and Blue Mountain, which have that, and Blue Knob, which have that 1,000 to 1,200 vertical feet. And then in the, in the Western part of the state, you get more snow, but there's not a lot of, and this actually surprised me when I dug into it. There's not a lot of little ski areas left in Pennsylvania. And Mount Pleasant is one of the few that's in that class of under 500 feet of vertical. I think you have sawmill um, and you have Tussie, you have a couple little ones like that. But when we were skiing on the chairlift, you pointed back over the back of the lift to the ridges behind us. And you said there was a lost ski area there and there was a lost ski area there and there was a ski area there and you just counted them up And the state is littered with these. Why did Mount Pleasant survive when so many other skiers, even those that share your little microclimate of, of lake effect snow, which we'll discuss, why did so many fail when Mount Pleasant succeeded and why is Mount Pleasant still there defying, frankly, a lot of logic? It's a great question. Um, and I wish I knew a lot of the answers because <laughs> uh, we are even in where Pennsylvania is kind of a unique ski state in itself. It really doesn't fit the stereotypical mold of, you know, the new England skiing or Western skiing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, skiing in Pennsylvania is kind of a, a unique sport in and itself. <laughs> right. um, we are fortunate to, to have as many ski areas as we, we do. And a lot of people don't know that we have that much skiing to offer in Pennsylvania. You know, people think skiing and they think Vermont, New Hampshire, Colorado, Utah, California. Um, there's a lot of skiing to be done in Pennsylvania um, and a lot of skiers, um, not just ski areas, but a lot of people who, who participate in the sport. Uh, I, I think we've been able to succeed here, um, kind of like I discussed before, you know, there, there's a passion for it here. Um, a passion for our, our little ski area and a sense of pride in it. You know, there's, um, people are proud of what we've been able to do here. Um, 
but it's it's definitely unique. Like uh, I, I was just um, the original owner. He was actually here just this weekend, and and we were we were discussing things. And um, little did I know there was another ski area that was just two miles from Mount Pleasant. Wonder why. Um, uh, and it was just a rope tow. And he said, that's where I learned to ski. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I learned to ski there um, in the 60s. And I said, hey, this is kind of fun. I could do this someplace. Uh-huh. And he, at the age of 32, he opened Mount Pleasant. Cool. Uh, but yeah, there's it, just in our, our local area within 10 miles, um, there's three of three ski areas that I know of that have opened and closed. And we're fortunate enough to, to, to still be here today. I think... Um, the couple things that really that really keep us going is we have a really close relationship with the local town Edinburgh um, so much so that you know it was always called Mount Pleasant changed to Mountain View we changed the name to Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh you know we're uh, we're we're deeply rooted in that community in the schools in the area um, one of the reasons we've we've been able to 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 keep busy and and, and s- survive is we're directly uh, into the school system. So we bring a lot of kids from the local school districts out here. Um, and that's one of our, our main business models is the, our after school learn to ski program. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we've been able to, to survive. Um, the other th- reason across this from not just the locally, but statewide is we are fortunate enough to, to be in the snow belt and we get a little bit more snow than the rest of the state. Um, and it's helped us where in the lean years where we, we might not be able to make a lot of snow, we were getting just enough natural snow to, to eke by. Um, where, you know, in the 70s when it was real snowy and a lot of these little ski areas opened, as soon as, uh, as, soon as the snow disappeared, so did the ski areas. Um, so, yeah, I think we're fortunate. Um, it is kind of unique. You look at a map of ski areas across the state of Pennsylvania, and we're, we still are kind of a, our own lone ranger out here. Uh, you know, we had Ski Denton and Cowersport. That was the closest. Um, but now it's a Tussie or Seven Springs, is, and there's they're three, three-and-a-half, four-hour drives. Yeah, Denton, hopefully – the, the state of Pennsylvania is trying to revive Denton and they're offering some pretty good incentives. They don't have any bites on an operator yet. Uh, maybe Doug and Laura are interested in a retirement project. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, it's f- funny. A little side story. That's where Doug learned how to ski was Denton. Oh, no oh, cool. Um, and I've skied there a couple times and, and it's some of the better skiing I've ever had. Um, it's a lot, it's a fun little area. I hope, I hope they can get, somebody could get in there and, and revive it. Um, but it kind of speaks to your question about why were we able to survive? You know, they, they didn't have the infrastructure to, to keep it going. Um, yeah, the other thing that, that we've really benefited from specifically, you know, our ski area is we're close to Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, we're close to Meadville, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of people that live near us, you know, um, like Denton, for example, there's not a lot of people that live in North central Pennsylvania. Uh, so we do have enough people that we're able to, to stay busy and, and people can come out and enjoy. So let's, let's talk about the mountain a little bit here because we've been skirting around it. And, and like I said, it's a really nice little operation. And, and I think that you have some natural advantages and you have some, uh, some very deliberate infrastructure advantages that, that we've referenced as far as folks, you know, the very committed 
group of people who have put their heart, soul, cash into the place over the years. So let's talk, first of all, about that chairlift. I really think, aside from the snowmaking, which which is a little bit uh, less glamorous, but nonetheless an important piece of this, but the chairlift is really the first thing people notice. And you, as you mentioned, when you first started skiing there, it was this antique T-bar, and sometimes it ran, and sometimes it didn't, and, and parts were tough, and everything else. So you you got this chairlift in 2014 from Granite Peak, Wisconsin. And I want to point out to folks who are not as familiar with Granite Peak, and I hosted Granite Peak General Manager Greg Fisher on the podcast, and that ski area very aggressively updated, it's upgraded its infrastructure starting around the turn of the century and now has one of the most modern lift fleets in the country. It has a high-speed six-pack, has two high-speed quads. It intends to put in a whole bunch more high-speed lifts. This is just the, the philosophy that they have. Let's get people up the hills. It's 700 vertical feet, but they want to keep people moving. As a result, the chairs that they took out in a lot of cases weren't really that old and were still in pretty good shape. One of those, which is now your main lift, your triple, uh, came to Mount Pleasant. But, you know, a lift doesn't just, you don't just send it through the mail to from Wisconsin <laughs> to Mount Pleasant. So, so talk about, just tell us the story, lay this out for us. How did you find that lift? How did you buy it? How did you afford it? How did you get it to Mount Pleasant? And how did you get it up on the mountain? And how long did that take? Yeah, it, it was quite the endeavor. So um, <laughs> uh, it, it was definitely a project. So uh, in the, would be the spring of, of 2014, right after we closed, we had had a, a particularly good season. Um, you know, business was good, um, and we recognized two things. You know, we need more uphill capacity to grow. Um, and in 2014, that would have made the T-bar what 44 years old, um, and it was it was getting by, and that was about it. Um, okay. <clears throat> Parts are difficult to get for it. Um, it, it was a more of a chore to keep it operating uh, than it would be to really in, invest and in, in get something new. Um, so Doug started looking around. There's a lot of different uh, websites actually that you, you can buy people post and use ski equipment on. Um, so, and I, I think he actually heard of this lift that was word of mouth, um, but you know, Doug is a is a craftsman. He's a he's was an art industrial art teacher. He owned his own construction business on the side, building homes. So he's um, he's immensely talented when it comes to stuff like this. So he said, you know, I could I could build a chairlift. That that would be a fun goal. Um, so we we really got ourselves <laughs> into something when we did that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he found the lift in Granite Peak. Um, I, it, it had been disassembled at Granite Peak. Um, for several years, I believe. Um, so, you know, made the buy and then, uh, he and a couple guys from here drove up and arranged for a trucking company. And when they got to Granite Peak, um, you know, it was sitting in a pile in the woods. <laughs> so they, they got there and, um, of course they did this in, um, April, early May where all of our snow had been melted for a while. Um, uh, the Northern woods of Wisconsin, it's still, pretty wet and there was still <laughs> snow on the slopes when they got there. Wow. Um, so he had the rent equipment when he got to, to Wisconsin to pick it up and actually had to, we did everything, you know, they, it wasn't crated up and ready for us when we got to Granite Peak. Uh, 
we had to rent the equipment and load it onto the trailer ourselves and bring it back here. Uh, but just even that's a, a, a challenge in itself. Like you said, you don't, you don't call up UPS and say, Hey, we have a chairlift that we need delivered. Um, you know, there's wide loads that need to be organized. You know, um, the bull wheel itself is 13 feet wide. Wow. Um, that, that's well into another car lane. So a couple wide loads that we had to organize. Um, like you mentioned, the vertical drop at Granite Peak is uh, 700 feet. Ours is 340. So the lift itself, we, we cut almost in half. Um, but we had lots of extra peaches, which is nice. Um, so, you know, we brought way more of a ski lift home than we really needed, but it was nice to have all the extra parts and pieces, uh, when you're, when you're assembling it. So, yeah, you know, loaded it all up, brought it home, unloaded it. How many it, trucks did that take? I'm just curious. How many trucks did it take to get it back? I think it was, I think it was nine. Um, Jeez. yeah, so it was a lot. Uh, it was a, it was quite the convoy of, of trucks to get it home. Um, and unfortunately I, I couldn't make the trip to Wisconsin to, to pick it up, but I was, uh, I was waiting here when the trucks rolled into the parking lot with all the parts and pieces. So that wow. was fun. Wow. Um, so yeah, everything was unloaded. And then, uh, we were fortunate enough to get connected with, a, a, a builder. Um, his name is Tom Lecklider or Todd Lecklider, excuse me. Um, and he actually built the lift at Granite Peak originally. Oh, no way. So, yeah. So he's a specialty in riblet chairlifts. Okay. Um, and even today, if we have a question, I call Todd about it. Um, and he could recall by memory wire numbers and wire colors. <laughs> you, see, you, go, you go into this panel and you'll see, a, you'll see a wire. It's number 94 and it's green and it should be right here. It's unbelievable. Yep. There it is. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, he built it originally at Granite Peak. Granite Peak moved it to its uh, other location, um, and then they tore it down and replaced it with a high-speed quad, and we reinstalled it here, and Todd was involved with all three times. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, he's kind of an expert when it comes to riblet chairs, and he moved in in the summer, and, and we built it. Um, but it's it's no easy feat to, to build a chairlift. Um you know, there's a, a million steps that, that have to happen um, uh, as far as surveying it, making sure that the grades are all right, um, engineering that has to go into the, the design of the towers, placement of the towers, how many shivs on each tower. Um, you just don't say, oh, this is how it was set up at Granite Peak. This is how we're going to set it up here at Mount Pleasant. Um, there's a lot that a, a lot of variability there that, that has to be re-engineered and whatnot. Um, so it was definitely quite the chore, but we did it and did it right. You know, um, all the bearings were changed out on the shiv wheels. All the maintenance was done when it was tore apart. We essentially reinstalled a, a new chairlift in 2014. Unbelievable. How did you get the towers up? Did you have to bring in a helicopter? No. Um, we set them all up by hand. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we love our little ski area, but it's not super steep and not super tall. So right. we were able to to rent a teller hand, telehandler unit and set them all by, say by hand, but by, by equipment. Um, so nothing was flown in or anything like that. Um, it, it was all done from the ground up. Um, but it's still, you, you look at one of those towers, um, the, the tallest tower I believe is 38 feet tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite the feat to get it up there. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, not kidding. And the one thing 
being inter, uh, really involved with the installation, um, as you mentioned in the intro, I work for a, a civil engineering company. Um, we actually did all of the site layout work for the chair. So we did okay. the, we surveyed the, the hill before the chairlift was installed um, and then did all the layout for the chair. So we sent everything, all the specs for the chairlift to a company in New Hampshire um, uh, and they engineered it and said, okay, you need to put this chairlift or this tower here and it needs to have so many downhill shivs, so many uphill shivs, it needs to be so high. Um, and then we came out and actually surveyed it and each one of those towers is placed within a 16th of an inch. Wow. Um, so it's, it's amazing the, the, um, the engineering that goes into building a chairlift. Um, it, it's something we knew going into it, but it, it, it got quite detailed, <laughs> which is yeah. fun though. It's, it's, <laughs> it's something definitely unique. You know, most ski areas, they, they hire, uh, Doppelmeyer or SeaTac uh, to come in and put their chairlifts in, and and we did it all by hand. So it's it's really something that we're proud of. Um, it's proud of something that we we built and accomplished here. It, it really is remarkable, Andrew. And you look around the country, and in a lot of instances, when a small area like yours purchases a used lift, it takes them several years to get it in. Uh, Platykill up in New York, nice little eleven hundred vertical foot mountain. They, they bought a double chair from Bel Air, which is another ski area nearby, and it took them three years to get it in. And if you look at Magic Mountain up in Vermont, they're going in year four of installing a quad that they bought from Stratton, which is also nearby. Now, the one thing that those mountains have, as you pointed out, they have very steep terrain and, and very technical terrain, so they have some challenges there. But you're absolutely right. It, unless Doppelmeyer or, or one of the other big manufacturers involved, it usually takes a lot of time. So the fact that you and your team were able to get that in over the course of, of an off season is incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, it was a seven day a week, sun up to sundown project. Um, and, and still then we, we just got it done. <laughs> um, part of the reason for the emphasis is we had to, uh, you know, we tore down our main lift and we needed to replace it with our only lift. Yeah. Um, so if, if it wasn't open and inspected, you know, we weren't skiing. Um, so we had to get it done, obviously. And, and we did. Um, you know, I remember the, the first day I rode the chair, uh, there was snow on the ground. Uh, and I believe that was early, early November, maybe late October. We had some early snow that we had to contest with. I, I have pictures of it before there was even chairs on. Uh, we had snow on the ground. Um, but it, it's unique, you know, a lot of things that you, you don't expect when you when you build a chairlift. Um, uh, the one thing that we found out is uh, we put all the uh, all the chairs on and, and said, OK, let's put the safety bars on mm -hmm. We're looking around. And, you know, there's where are the safety bars at? <laughs> uh, turns out that the Donner chair at Granite Peak didn't have safety bars. <laughs> Uh, so we kind of had to audible at the last minute and, uh, and we actually sent a chair to a manufacturer. Um, I believe it was in New Jersey okay. uh, and said, okay, here's our chair. Please make us safety bars. Uh, <laughs> uh, so a lot of, a lot of things that come up that you don't expect. Um, a lot of people don't understand the, the rigors that the, the state, especially Pennsylvania, puts you through in order to install and certify a chairlift. 
Um, you know, you, we loaded it to a 110% capacity and it's got to stop in just a matter of a couple feet wow. uh, when it's loaded like that. So there's a lot that has to happen. Um, and it's definitely a feat to, to build a chairlift. It's definitely a, an even bigger feat to, to really do it on your own. You know, that we hired no outside contractors other than, than Todd, um, who, who knows the, the back, the, the lift, like the back of his hand, you know? Um, and, and we couldn't have done it without him. Um, but you know, when you say our team, it was really Todd and Doug and a couple laborers, you know, it, it was definitely not a crew of, of 10 or 20 every day. It was a, a crew of three or four who built the chairlift, but, um, you know, we we're proud of our, proud of our product that we built and, and we really love our chair. As well, you should be. It's it's really impressive project, especially when you lay it out for us like that. I want to take a quick aside here because you said something interesting about safety bars. I started skiing in Michigan as a teenager, and other than the two high speed lifts in the state at the time, which was a six pack at Boyne Mountain and a high speed quad at what was then known as Boyne Highlands, now the Highlands of Harbor Springs, there were no safety bars that I knew of on any of the lifts in the state. So I just didn't really think about it. And then when I moved out east 20 years ago to New York and started skiing around, I noticed they all have them. Is that something that is required in Pennsylvania to have safety bars in the lifts? Because the, the safety bar culture, it's it's one of these funny little things that is so different across the country. Like you go out west and no one wants to put the bar down. I don't know why. Like they're afraid their friends will see them. And they won't think they're cool. It, it's so dumb, but whatever. I roll with it wherever I am. You read the room. Then you go to the Midwest. There are no bars. And then you right. go out east and there's bars and everyone drops them right away. So you have to be careful unless you want to get your head caved in. So so does Pennsylvania require them or is that just something that you thought as, as a skier, you wanted to have that for your customers? No, Pennsylvania does not require safety bars. Okay. Um, and and I believe there are several lifts in the state that, that don't have safety bars. Okay. Um, um, I've never ridden one personally, but I think there are several. Uh, the that's something that we wanted for our customers. Um, like I mentioned earlier, our, our main clientele is, is kids. We wanted to make sure we had safety bars on our chair. Um, it is interesting. The, um, the national skiers association has done a lot of research on, on safety bars and whatnot. The accident rate, uh, with or without safety bars is nearly identical. Okay. Um, it's that the, the thought is that, if you don't have a safety bar, you're more apt to, to sit quietly in your chair and not goof off. Okay. <laughs> uh, Interesting. The, the safety bar almost gives people a sense of safety, really, you know, mm-hmm. that I could, uh, I could goof off and play up here. Um, <laughs> so, but it's something, again, we, we have a, we have a lot, we teach a lot of kids how to ski. Something that we definitely wanted was, was safety bars on our chair. Um, and, and I had never, I, I had always skied on a chair with safety bars and, um, uh, I went to Colorado. Uh, yeah, I went out a couple of times when I was a kid, but just a couple of years ago we skied at a basin and, um, yeah, their, their Palaveri chair there, no safety bars on it. Mm-hmm. It was steep. It's like, yeah. holy cow. You know, I, I feel I'm a pretty accomplished skier, but this is something a little different. <laughs> um, but no, so it obviously didn't have them. We added them to the chair and, um, happy with it since then so you got this beautiful chairlift new for you chairlift going up the mountain uh, when you opened for the 2014 to 15 ski season what was the reaction like from your skiers and how did that chairlift change the character of mount pleasant you know, people were excited 
uh, you know, I remember the day we opened, we had a lineup. People were here and they were ready to ski it. Um, um, we had we had a reputation that I kind of discussed about. You know, we were people called it the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, we had this old tea bar that um, if you if you were able to make it up, great. If not, you were either dragged up or you fell off. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it had a reputation of of a, an old antiquated system that people didn't like to do. You know, um, it, it's kind of unique. You know, we our bread and butter is is young kids and and yeah, four and five year olds struggle on a T bar. Right. Um, so it, it was it was something we needed to do to grow the business. Um, and and people still today are surprised that you know <laughs> show up from. I hear it every year. They're like, Hey, I thought there was a T bar here still. <laughs> um, so it, it really has kind of changed the changed our clientele a little bit um, and turned it into more of a ski area. Um, I still miss the T bar. I, I used to, we had a lot of good times on the T bar and it was a lot of fun, um, but it's definitely nice. I have, I bring my three year old on the chairlift and, and I don't have to squat down and, the t-bars behind my knees to try bring somebody <laughs> up so i appreciate that part of it um, yeah well let's talk about that for a minute let's pour one out for the t-bar because you told me some really funny stories about the t-bar when we were skiing together out there and and i i know that you know it, while maybe they're not the best lift in all circumstances and and t-bars and surface lifts are having a bit of a resurgence for sort of high alpine lifts or or wind lifts that are susceptible to wind hold for more experienced skiers, but you're absolutely right. The chairlift is the more appropriate lift there. But, you know, that T-bar you have had some really fond memories of, as you explained it to me. So just talk about that T-bar, how that animated the ski area, and and how that lives on in your memory as a piece of Mount Pleasant as it was in the old days. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, as a kid growing up, uh, we had a lot of, this was our hangout in the winter, and we had a lot of a lot of fun with that T bar, um, a lot of things that you know Doug and Laura would would really cringe to know if we <laughs> what we did when we were up there. Um, uh, one of the it was never installed right, and there was some there was some strange ups and downs on the T bar. So there's some points where you would actually come to almost a stop um, and then pick up speed again. Uh, and we used to see how many people we could actually get on a T-bar. Right. Um, and I think the most we ever had was nine. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, How? How's that even yeah, possible? Yeah, a lot of holding on to poles and holding on to the edge. Um, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. That, that spot just happened to be in a site where you just crest the hill and you can't see it from the bottom. You can't see it from the top lift operator hut. Um, so a lot, <laughs> lot of fun on the T-bar. Um you know, I remember when I was in high school, uh, we would we would roll snowballs in the woods um, like we were making snowmen, and we'd roll them and bring them over to the T-bar line, and we'd we'd break them up and just to keep a white ribbon to go up the hill. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, uh, a lot of shoveling. You know, we'd pay people to start at the top and shovel snow out of the woods and shovel it onto the T-bar line just to keep going. Um, it was a uh, it, it was really unique. Um, when I first started, it was woods on either side. Um, and, and, you know, those are some of my favorite chairlifts is um, when you got the trees around you and whatnot. 
and it was really something special when you're you're going up on the t-bar and you're you're down at the base of the trees you know um it was really difficult as a ski instructor with the t-bar you know you had somebody fall halfway up it was a oh. hike through the woods to get back to a trail oh gosh <laughs> um of course the, the the closest trail was the steepest trail and you never wanted to send them over there um so as a ski instructor it was always uh, it was always unique because if you if you were able to get them up the first time going up the t-bar you would generally have kids scattered across the mountain you know some of them get to tower one some of them get to the top um some of them would go we we had an intermediate unload in the t-bar um that was easier for beginners but some of them didn't get the message where to unload so you'd always have them scattered across the but it it, it was um a lot of nostalgia with the t-bar and um it was a lot of fun but it was also i remember the nights that we were up all night long after it would derail and I remember one specific night it derailed at the uppermost tower with the most tension on it. And we spent 12 hours just trying to get it back on the, on the, uh, on the shiv wheels to operate the next day. Um, so it, it was a, it, it was a, a lot of fun, but it was also a headache. <laughs> How did you finally get the, the tees back on? Yeah, we, we finally did it the, that night. It was a, we used a combination of, it was really an engineering marvel. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we had times where we would bring the groomer up or the, or the tucker and we would have to, to, we'd set the counterweight down into the tucker just so it was high enough off the ground that we can actually take enough tension off the cable to, to make it work. Uh, it, it, we had some, some wild engineering feats to <laughs> or on the the depressed shivs we would take the cable and and attach it to the to the um the plow of the groomer and push the plow down to, to move the cable around um it was a it was an engineering nightmare in marvel at the same time sometimes <laughs> Um, so we love our chairlift as a result <laughs> not that it doesn't have its own challenges um but uh, it, it's definitely unique. One of the one of the unique things that we had to overcome with when we built the T bar, um, a or excuse me, built the chairlift, uh, a T bar. Everybody or no, not everybody makes it to the top. Right. You know, um, mm -hmm. if people weren't ready to go up the big hill, the T bar sorted them out naturally. Uh, the chairlift, everybody gets up to the top now. <laughs> uh, so whether they're ready or not they're getting on that chair and they're getting up there. Um, so it, it comes with its own, own unique challenges. Um, and one of the bigger challenges is, uh, you know, everybody's hanging from the air. A T right. bar had an issue. Uh, it was like, everybody unload to your right, please. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the chairlift is we got a hundred people in the air at any given time. So it's a little bit more nerve wracking. Have you, have you had to evac that chair? We have not. No. We practice it every year, but um, and we're good at it. But we have not had to evac it now. All right, I'll knock on wood for you. What, what was Thank the <laughs> what was the fate of that T bar, Andrew? Um, most of it is in our boneyard down in the parking lot. Uh, so we have a there's there's parts and pieces. Um, we we did utilize uh, there the the T bar and the J bar were both made by Palma. Um, back in 1970. So a lot of the parts uh, we actually utilize for the J bar in the beginner area to keep it going. 
Um, but we have a we have towers and bull wheels and 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 shiv assemblies in the parking lot. Um, our goal is uh, once we continue to expand is to to utilize those and and, and put them up as memorabilia, but also uh, maybe lighting in the parking lot. Use the old towers for or Ooh, something cool. like that. We we have we have plans to uh, to keep using them. That's that's a neat idea. So you yeah, do it, have it will never die. <laughs> <laughs> so you do, as you mentioned, you still have an intact T bar on the other side of the ski area. So that skiers right going down and it ends. I'll say at mid mountain, it's actually closer to the top than the bottom. Uh, when I was there, I happened to be there after a really good MLK storm cycle, and that was a really fun run, and I really enjoyed down there and I, skiing down, and I took a whole bunch of pictures. Uh, but you you told me that you have plans for that lift line in the future. What do you have in mind? Yeah, so um, in the, the short term, uh, we anticipate to clean that up a little bit and make it um, published as a trail, you know. It never has been. We've always treated it as a, as a trail, though. That was always, uh, especially right after the T-Bar the closed, when I was just a, a ski instructor, it was like, all right, let's go over there and ski the old T-Bar line. Um, now it's now we treat it more as a trail. Um, but we have plans for growth, and we envision another chairlift um, in that area. Not necessarily the same alignment, um, but some someplace similar over there. So our goal is we'd like to add at least one more chairlift. Do you have in mind what kind of lift? Uh, probably another uh, a fixed grip triple, something like that. Um, we do like our riblet chairlift. Um, you know, if, if the opportunity arose to get something pretty similar, it would be nice to have uh, a near or identical model. Um, it, it's we have the parts and pieces to to fix it and keep it maintained. Like I said, when we bought it from Granite Peak, um, it was nearly twice as long. So we have extra shivs, extra towers. Um, all sorts of extra parts and pieces, um, which is, is kind of unique when it comes to that old equipment because um, it's, it's not easy to come by. So we have a lot of that, and it would be, it would be handy for us if we built something pretty similar. Um, uh, so that's kind of what we have envisioned. But, um, you know, as a small ski area, whatever we uh, – when it comes time to, to build it, we'll, we'll, we might have to take what we can get too. Um, but we, we like the we like the idea of the of the riblet or potentially something new even. But it would be a fixed fixed grip triple probably. And what would it take to make that happen? It, it sounds like you don't run debt there at the mountain. So so is that something you have to save up for? What what, what do you think is the best case scenario for actually seeing something rising up the mountain? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, those slopes the, the that that old T bar service. Um, there's no snow making or no lighting over there. So uh, with the weather becoming more consistently unreliable, uh, it, it would take us to, to make a major infrastructure upgrade in snowmaking and lighting over there before we would install um, uh, uh, another chairlift. Um, so over there, it's it, three, three or four slopes, really, you could call it. Um, our rough budget number is it's about one, one and a half million dollars per slope for snowmaking. Okay. So we're still, um, you know, eight, nine million in snowmaking away before we can even install a chairlift. Um, but it, it's something that we, we definitely recognize and we want to do. You know, we've, we've been consistently busy enough where we need another chairlift uh, to handle the uphill capacity. Um, so we, we want to add snowmaking over there, but not just, that doesn't come with just, uh, with 
snow guns that you see, um, you know, we'd have to double the miles of, of pipe. We need another supply for water. Um, it, there's a lot, lot that comes into uh, snowmaking and the infrastructure upgrades that come with it. Um, but that's all we all, we have it all planned. You know, we work closely with uh, HKD HKD snowmakers, um, so we have an idea what we need to do. It's just uh, we, we're still finishing uh, our main slopes yet, so we want to be able to finish those and be done before we move on to those other slopes. But it's exciting, though. You know, we we have a vision of uh, you know, more slopes, more lights, more snow guns, more chairlifts, more lodge space. Um, there's a lot going on, and, and, and we're we're really looking forward to it. So it sounds like you have a clear vision. The project is probably a few years out or many years out. You are, however, quite a bit closer, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, to completely overhauling your beginner area. So just to go back to that for a moment, you mentioned that cool J-bar you have down there. Really classic lift, really neat, really fun to ride. Uh, maybe not the best for the beginner beginners. So we had talked about your vision to overhaul that beginner area, which is down next to your tubing area, and some actual con concrete steps you've taken toward that. So lay that out for us, Andrew. What will the beginner area look like when you're done, and how close are you to making that happen? Yeah, so um, our first step that we took is last year we purchased a, a magic carpet, um, and we're really excited. Well, we were really excited last year. You know, it was delivered. We're ready to put it in. Um, comes to find out a lot of people bought magic carpets last summer. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, Lowly Mount Pleasant was at the bottom of the lift, list for installation. So um, there's only one engineer on the East Coast who really does magic carpet lifts. Um, so not just the install, which we could have handled ourselves, but it needs to be uh, engineered and certified by the state prior to us even putting it in. Um, so we got a call, uh, uh, we, we saw the writing on the wall come September, you know, it was like, Hey, we're, we're just probably not going to be able to do this. It, it was really disappointing. You know, we, the beginner area was packed last year, um, and it only increased this year and it would have been really nice to have it. Um, but you know, we're, we're excited. We're going to put that magic carpet in, um, uh, here, hopefully as soon as the snow breaks, we're, we'll, we'll get it in and installed. Um, and that will be kind of a supplement to the J bar. Nice. So we'll have, we'll have a, a little beginner area with the carpet and then we'll have the, the J bar for those who are a uh, little bit more easier to use. <laughs> <laughs> love that. Love that vision. And I love the magic carpet and the progression there because you have magic carpet. You kind of get used to that. You go up to the J bar, get used to your skis moving beneath you, and then maybe you're ready for that chairlift. So let's, let's talk a little bit about snow and snowmaking here, Andrew. You've talked quite a bit about snowmaking. I, and we've talked a little bit about the lake effect, but I really want to underscore this. I think most folks realize that Western New York is a snow magnet because you get that lake effect coming off of Lake Erie and coming off of Lake Ontario and, and, and Buffalo just gets slammed and Holiday Valley and Peak and Peak and Cocaine and all those areas. And if you look at the map, Mount Pleasant is really part of that weather system much more than any other than it is the, the rest of Pennsylvania, right? Because you're tucked there right against the lakes. And when I, I sort of, because I live in New York City and most of my Pennsylvania skiing, as far as days go, has been in Eastern Pennsylvania, which they have some great mountains out there, Elk and Montage, and Jack Frost, Big Boulder and Camelback and Shawnee, but they don't get a lot of snow. There's, inch, there's years, no kidding, where they get six inches of natural snow. So when you started laying this out for me, 
and we're out there and you said, yeah, Mount Pleasant can get up to 200 inches of snow. And I double checked that online and, and yes, your average 150 and there's years when you get over 200, it blew my mind. Cause I just never thought about that, even though it's so obvious when you look at the map. So just lay that out for us. And then also you said something interesting about the wind and the way that the, the currents have to kind of flow to get you those good snow years. So just lay that whole thing out for us in that fortunate geographic position that Mount Pleasant has. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're pretty fortunate to be, to lie right in the heart of the snow belt. Um, you know, it, we're, it's not unusual that Edinburgh or Mount Pleasant is the snowiest, uh, snowiest area in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, it, it's been, we've had a, it's been a couple of years since we've had a classic good snowy winter. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, we're, we're in a fortunate position. Like you said, a lot of people know the, the Hottie Valleys and the Peak and Peaks and whatnot, and they get a ton of lake effect snow. Um, if the wind is just right, uh, we also get it too, you know? Um, so I, I know, um, you know, there's times where, you know, it's been a while since we've had a good lake effect year, um, but it's nothing to get, you know, three, four feet of snow in a week or two or something wow. like that. Um, wow. and it, when it happens, it happens fast, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll get a, you go to bed and you wake up and you got 18 inches, you know, um, <laughs> Unbelievable. So it, it's a lot of fun. Um, and we got a little bit of it this year. We did get some lake effect, uh, not quite what we, we would like, but it's amazing though. Just the, the, the difference in wind, you know, as soon as I, I'm not looking at, uh, the snowfall numbers, but I'm looking at the wind direction when, when it comes to a lake effect storm. So, uh, the way Lake Erie's positioned, if, if we get a, a, a west wind or a south south southwest wind uh, it's a, a buffalo storm um, but as soon as we get something more of the northwest variety that's i know we're going to get a little bit of snow and, and uh that's exciting yeah i witnessed it firsthand and when i decided to make that run that week i i looked and i, I was kind of surprised to see that a scary in pennsylvania because most of them have 100 percent snow making had you know half of its train as natural snow trails and I was really surprised to see them open. I said, oh, I better get out there while they're open. But it turns out it sounds like they're open more than I, I think they are. Uh, nonetheless, you, you do have some pretty aggressive snowmaking plans um, and you do want to build another pond. So uh, you, you've talked about it in pieces. Just lay the whole plan out for us and where you hope ultimately to get Mount Pleasant as far as snowmaking coverage goes. Yeah, so we're about 50% coverage now on the, on the entire mountain. Um, but we, in the last couple of years, we have more than doubled our capacity. So we have, um, from about the mid nineties until just two or three years ago, we had one primary snowmaking pump and that was it. Um, and we could move about, convert about 400 gallons of water a minute into snow. And that was, that was it. You know, our, we'd get a snowmaking window and we could run what we could. And that was when, when it was done, that's all we had. Um, Two or I think that three years ago, we added our new snowmaking pump at the top of the mountain. Um, and it's the same size pump at the bottom, but it has the advantage of being at the top that we have some more head pressure there. So we brought our total snowmaking capacity over uh, a thousand gallons a minute, wow. which has been huge for us. Um, so it's nice when we get a, a snowmaking window, we can take it, advantage of that window and we can make snow um, with all of our snow guns that we own now. Um, so the snowmaking is everything, you know, natural snow is great and we love it. Um, and, but it almost acts more as a, 
get people excited to come on out and, and take advantage. The, uh, the, where it really comes down to is, is snowmaking capacity. Um, if we couldn't operate, uh, if we had no snowmaking here at Mount Pleasant, um, you know, this season we, we might've had a, a halfway decent season, but many years there would be even no opportunity to ski period. Um, it requires such a good base to be able to groom and maintain and, and, and overcome some of the utilities and water bars that we have on the hill. Um, so it, it really boils down to snowmaking and that's everything. Um, so we have uh, two pump houses and two snowmaking reservoirs. Um, and we have about 3 million gallons of uh, water storage available for us to use, but that is just enough to get open. Um, so we at, at some point need to expand that, um, expand that storage to, you know, I'd love to have 10 million gallons of water stored at some point. Um, cause that, that's what it, that's what it takes to, to get open and stay open on all the slopes. You know, I, I think at some point we're going to need, um, to, to cover all the slopes and two feet of snow. Um, we're probably going to need 20 million, 20 million gallons of water. Um, so the, the one reservoir, um, is solely a reservoir. There's no, no inflow to it. The other pond, uh, is part of a stream. So we do have water that comes into it. Uh, part of the unique thing that we had this year is, uh, we, we made a lot of snow. And then once the, uh, once it started to snow naturally on its old own, it was also very cold. Right. And, uh, the inflow to the pond trickled down to nearly nothing. Oh, no. So we had we had good snowmaking temperature, but we just didn't even have the the water to convert to snow. Oh, bummer. Uh, so yeah, we have a we now have a modern system. Uh, we just need to keep increasing snow gun capacity and whatnot. Um, you know, we have uh, we have about thirty snow guns that we can use reliably to cover the whole mountain. We probably need a hundred. Okay. Um, so so we're getting there but it's definitely a, a process. What a, a lot of people, they, they don't see or understand the, the snowmaking infrastructure. Um, and we have over a mile of uh, buried pipe underground, a mile of high voltage electric. Um, every one of those snow guns is, has to be fed by something uh, and, it, and people don't see it. Um, and a lot of ski areas have... Um, compressor stations we have each of our snow guns is an onboard uh air compressor um which is somewhat unique but it, it's fairly common for smaller ski areas to do it that way as opposed to a large compressor station um so it just adds a little bit more cost for each snow gun that we have to add because each one needs its own uh air compressor as well um, but we have big plans you know we already have a spot set for our next uh pond and pump house uh it just has to has to happen, but like we do everything here in small stages. So our other pump house that we built, you know, one year we built the pond, the next year we built the pump house, and then the following year we completed it, we put the pump in. Um, so it's everything, um, everything goes in stages just to make sure that we, we don't overstep our bounds. All right. So let's talk about your trail network. I don't take this the wrong way, but I, I, uh, I liked Mount Pleasant a lot more than I was expecting to. And, and, you know, you, you never know what to expect when you show up at these small ski areas. And I, I think a lot of them over time have kind of become like, in order to accommodate the skier volume have become sort of clear cut. So it, it feels almost like you're uh, 
above treeline, but it it takes away a lot of the character and features of the mountain. And one thing I really liked about your trail network was that it really was a trail network, right? You have that big slope, skiers left of the lift, which is a really nice fall line, a uh, great straight shooter to the bottom. But then you have a lot of little winding trails through the woods, and I thought they were really fun. Uh, and you also have a a couple thin or a one thin glade you have that lift line we talked about and you and i were discussing this in your your philosophy on trail building and and open skiing and and you kind of like the the border to border model where people can just ski wherever they can and you mentioned the possibility of thinning more glades in the future and and you pointed specifically to Mad River Glen and your experience up there and and that philosophy and how that kind of guided you. So talk about that a little bit and and the sort of really rich character of Mount Pleasant's trail network and and how you see that evolving into the future. Yeah, um I appreciate the compliments on the the trail network, you know. Um it's we don't have a thousand feet of vertical, obviously. Uh it we're not really that steep. Um, so all we can do is offer is the, is the, a nice trail network. And that's why we, we're kind of going with the, the border to border philosophy, if you will. Um, you know, uh, I, I want to give people every opportunity to ski anything they want, you know, whether it be glades or, or old lift lines or something like that. Um, you know, I, I, I love Mad River Glen my, myself as I, I really enjoy that ski area, um, I, I love their lodge. I love everything, all the nostalgia about it. And I love the ski it if you can mentality. Um, we obviously don't have, uh, have cliffs or rock faces or, or steep like Mad River Glen does. Right. But I, I like the, I like the idea of, you know, people can go out and, and ski in the trees or, or ski wherever they really want to. Um, it, it makes it a, a more fun atmosphere. Um, like you said, you, it was better than you expected. And, and that's part of our problem is we, we don't have a lot of, we have one lift, you know, you go up and down the same chairlift every day or, or all day long. Um, you know, it could get old. We, we want to make sure that people have enough, uh, spice that they can enjoy it. Um, and part of that's the kind of the, the border to border, uh, ski policy, if you will, you know, letting people, um, ski in the woods, find their own unique terrain features to ski. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough. I got out with some of the ski instructors this weekend. Um, and, and they have, I, I thought I knew every inch of the hill. They really this year have, uh, have found some new places to. Oh, enjoy. Really? Wow. Yeah. So it, it, it's a lot of fun. You know, it, it is what you make of it too. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're making turning stumps into jumps in the woods and stuff like that. <laughs> it, it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I'm, we're much more about people enjoying themselves than, than, you know, screaming at people when they go in the woods. And we used to have that mentality here. Um, it used to be, I remember when I was a ski instructor, if you went into the woods, um, you better make sure nobody saw you or you were in trouble. Um, but we've, we've kind of got away from that philosophy. I'd much rather, rather people enjoy themselves and do it safely. Um, but we definitely have a vision, you know, we have one small gladed area and it's, it, it's, uh, you could, we call it gladed, but I'd really like to continue to keep thinning it out. But I would like to see us at some point, um, you know, wall to wall, make the, the, the entire ski area trees. One thing that we, we do really like that you mentioned is, you know, it's not the big wide open slope. 
um, where there's a tree here or there. Um, we have one of those, um, and even that's not super wide, and it, it but it gives you a unique, uh, um, unique skiing experience right underneath the chair and then down onto a groomer right next to it. Um, but we want to have that variability so people don't, for lack of a better term, don't get bored. You know, skiing in the woods, um, skiing in the small, unique trails. Um, it gives people uh, more opportunity in different places to ski, that's for sure. So one of the things that we've seen small ski areas really build out as a, as a way to keep the hill interesting is terrain parks. I saw a couple of kickers when I was there. It doesn't seem like it's a central part of your culture. I could be mistaken, and I was just there on a certain day. But have you considered terrain park development as a way to get that sort of teenage youth culture in there that you know can ski the same terrain park a thousand times in a season and never get bored. I know that's very expensive to build and maintain terrain parks, but is that something that's, that's, that you've thought about? Yeah, it's something we, we think about and it's something that we, we talk about every year. Um, but exactly what, kind of what you brought up, um, it's expensive to build and maintain. Um, we are getting to the point, uh, where we want to do it. The, the biggest hurdle that we've had to overcome with it is snowmaking. Um, the, those terrain parks do require a lot of snow. Um, and up until just a couple of years ago, we struggled to keep it on the slope and on the lift line just so we were open. Um, so as we can continue to overcome that hurdle, we definitely want to explore um, adding a terrain park. Um, like you said, it's the, it, the, the young teenage group. It would, it would keep them around. Um, the, it has some advantages and some disadvantages. You know, the, it would keep people around, that's for sure. Um, the one thing that we are a little concerned about is, you know, maybe that's not the clientele of skier we always want here. You know, they have a, they have a, uh, a stereotype of being difficult to work with those park people, if you will. <laughs> uh, uh, and I know a lot of them are, are ski instructors. They're, they're constantly clamoring to, to have something. Um, and just last week I was witness to them bringing a corrugated pipe onto the hill and, and it disappeared over onto the, the far side. Um, so it, we, it's something we recognize and we really want to do. Um, it, it comes with maintaining it and making sure that um, it's safely done. Um, you know, the, the insurance company and National Ski Areas Association, they have pages of documents that you need to do to, to, to do it properly. But it's something we want to do and we, we, we explore every year we got to get to the point where we can make snow on it reliably first and actually, actually ski before we could start doing that. But we do add a couple small jumps and, and whatnot. And like I said, I, I encourage them to, to use the existing terrain features that we have to, to make your own terrain park, if you will. Um, and when we have lots of snow, that's easy. You know, you could, you could find a terrain feature anywhere that to enjoy. Um, so they're always kind of surprised that our, when I say they, I mean, our, our ski instructors, cause they're the one clamoring for it. Um, you know, I don't, you go into the woods and you could do whatever you want in there. As long as you're not <laughs> digging a hole on the main slope, it doesn't b bother me one bit. Um, so it, they always end up finding something fun and, and everybody enjoys it. Um, but we need to, that's something we're, uh, we're looking to do in the future for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that. I definitely found some cool stuff in the woods. And if you're creative, just like any scary, if you have enough snow, you can keep yourself pretty happy for a day. Uh, what One cultural curiosity here, Andrew, if you dig deep enough into the old trail maps, you'll find a, ski, a run skiers left off the lift called Minuteman, which disappeared off the trail map 
a number of years ago, about 30 years ago now. What happened to that run and could Minuteman ever return? Yeah, so Minuteman was, um, it, it got its name as Minuteman because it was it was very short and very steep and it didn't take long to, to ride it. Yeah. Um, but it was a great run. You know, I never, um, I, I never skied it when it was open, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. when, uh, uh, back and when I was a first started ski instructing, you know, it was the cool thing to go to go over there and ski Minuteman, um, <laughs> and, and hope ski patrol didn't find you. Um, <laughs> those difficult I, teenagers, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it was a fun run. It was short. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, we don't own that property. The, uh, our ski area boundary ends right at the end of chestnut there. That would be the run underneath the, ch- the chairlift. Um, there's a possibility of it returning, you know, it's, uh, it's owned by a, a timber company. Um, so it, there's some, there's, there's some good ski, ski bowl area over there. So I'd like to explore that down the future. Um, but r- right now, um, the focus is increase in snowmaking and, and increase in uphill capacity. Um, but the, the terrain expansion is something that we definitely are looking into and, and we'd like to do, um, should it become available. Aside from that historic footprint skiers left, if you zoom out on Google Maps and the satellite view, there's quite a bit of woods around you. Is there any possibility of expansion in any other direction? And what does the terrain look like out in the woods? Um, so skiers right of the of what we, again, call the dark side, this, the area serviced by the old T-bar, um, it, there's some very steep terrain in there, um, steep but short, um, and unfortunately all south-facing. Uh, so, uh, you know, unless there was some major development with snowmaking or whatnot, it would probably be very difficult to develop that. Um, for, for the time being, we're, we're set with our footprint, uh, and, and working on focus, uh, focusing on proving that, um, our goal is we, we would like to double our skier visits just on our footprint that we have with the existing slopes and with the, uh, additional uphill capacity in the future. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's shift gears here and talk about this season and some of the particular challenges that the ski industry has been facing, particularly around the labor shortage. And, and I've been really impressed, Andrew, with the way that you and, and many other independent ski area operators have been able to keep open seven nights a week and really offer that full ski season. It's a short ski season. Everyone knows that in Pennsylvania, but really be able to offer exactly what customers were expecting. And, and if you look at Vale and their mountains that are sort of in your competitive range. They're not, you know, they're, they're an hour and a half, two hours away, but nonetheless, you're, you're dealing with substantively the same kind of ski culture, right? So a lot of them have really cut their hours, offered far fewer days of operation. I'm talking about Alpine Valley in Ohio and Boston Mills Brandywine. And, and you see them not really delivering on the product that I think their pass holders were expecting. So it's a two-part question. Number one, how were you able to do that? Because, you know, you are near Erie, but it's some back roads to get there. I mean, it, it kind of feels remote when you're out there. So how were you able to staff up and open seven days a week? And the second part of the question, Andrew, is what would happen to Mount Pleasant if you would have juked your pass holders like that and sold them, even though your pass is inexpensive, it's 350 bucks, but if sold it with the expectation of seven days a week skiing, and then you said, oh, actually, we're going to be open two nights a week. Sorry. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. Um, as a skier myself, I don't know how, <laughs> I know my personal reaction to that. Um, but to, to handle the staffing question, um, 
you know, it's been a challenge. Uh, uh, we've been able to, to handle it and get it done. But as uh, the general manager's position, uh, it's been really the, the employment. That's that's all I've done. I do it every day. Um, you know, I, we advertise. Um, I, as soon as I get somebody, the employment applications go right to my inbox. As soon as somebody applies, I turn around and, and interview them and see if we can hire them. Okay. Um, so it's it, it's a continual challenge. Um, we've been very fortunate this year that we have a lot of really good employees. Um, so even better than last year, which we didn't expect per se. Um, we we kind of expected the labor market to get worse. Uh, we our target employee. Um, we try to target. Um, older retired folks. So our, our chairlift operators are mostly retired guys. You know, they, they've been mailmen or prison guards or something like that. And they come out and, and, and operate the chairlift and not just the chairlift, but the two park and um, ticket sales and everything. That's kind of our target. Um, <laughs> they're never late and they're attentive <laughs> to detail. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, no, it's it's great. You know, um, <laughs> sometimes we joke. You know, it's like um, November. We'll take a, a car load down to the nursing home and bring them back here for, <laughs> for employees. Um, but it's uh, it, it's it's kind of our target group. You know, we have older retired guys, and they make awesome chairlift operators. You know, um, uh, but it's it's a challenge nonetheless. You know, um, I am um, constantly hiring. Um, you know, we're always advertising that we're looking for more employees and it's a struggle. Um, but it's, it's something that, you know, when I first started, that's the one thing that Doug told me when I started is there's a lot of things that we would like to happen. The one thing that has to happen is we can't open if we don't have any employees. Right. <laughs> uh, and we took that to heart and, and being a small ski area, you know, we, we have to offer it, you know, um, I like to tell our employees when they start, you know, we don't have 3000 feet of vertical. We don't get 5,000 or 500 inches of snow in a year. Um, we're not super steep and we don't have rock faces and cliffs and stuff like that. We have to offer good customer service. That's all we have. Um, and I think that's important and we need to continue to offer that. Um, and we need to offer that seven nights a week. So it's really important to me and the ownership, Stuart, that we um, we're fully staffed and we're fully operational. Um, nothing is more embarrassing to me than if uh, we would have to close or couldn't offer a product because I just it's there, but I don't have an employee to do it. Um, that nothing nothing would be more embarrassing to us than to to have to do that. Um, so I, I can't speak for Vale and some of the labor issues that they're having. Um, uh, but I know as a management, it's, uh, it's gotta be frustrating to, to have a product that you can offer, um, and, and not have the, the staff to do it. Um, I, I worry a little bit that maybe some of those ski areas near Cleveland, they're so close to each other and they're all so small. You know, we talked about how Mount Pleasant's a fairly small ski area, 350 feet of vertical. None of those have a higher vertical than us. Um, I hope that they're not, um, uh, cutting back their hours just to, to keep people busy at all the ski areas. But it's, it's, it's definitely impacted our business. Um, you know, 
that we've seen an influx of people from the Ohio area. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really? Yeah. One, the one major thing that we've seen is uh, they operate two parks normally. And to my knowledge, that none of them have opened their two parks yet. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've seen a, an increase in um, people from Ohio coming over tubing and skiing um, and enjoying it. You know, uh, I, I know I know the people over there are frustrated, and I get it. I don't I don't blame them one bit. I know our clientele, if we, we sold a product and said, yeah, you know, we're just going to open Friday, Saturday, Sunday now, um, they wouldn't be real pleased with us. <laughs> uh, so we try really hard to offer that. Um, and it's, it's a constant battle some days. And, and some days it involves uh, Doug or I operating the chairlift, <laughs> yeah. which we, we don't mind. Um, or myself in the rental shop or in the tube park or something like that. But we, we get it done because it's very important to us. Um, and the twofold with Vail, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't want as a manager, I wouldn't want to be in that position. And as a skier, I wouldn't want to be in that position either. It would, wouldn't be fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a major drag. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really cool and really struck me immediately when I got to Mount Pleasant, Andrew, was this lodge you have. And I, First of all, I, I, it, it's the weirdest thing. I've never been to a, a ski area in the east where I, I couldn't see some kind of building from the parking lot. So I, I parked and it's across the street, which is not uncommon in, uh, in New York and Pennsylvania. And I was looking around. I'm like, where's the lodge? And, and so you, you walk up this walkway and, and you come around the corner and it's just so amazing. It's such a cool building. Tell us about the lodge and its history. Yeah, so the, the lodge is something uh, unique here. So we mentioned a lot of the infrastructure dates back to 1970 when we opened. The lodge itself uh, actually dates back to the 50s. Um, it was constructed as a dairy barn. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of, I, I don't know of any other ski area in the world that can say that, you know, um, you know where you're getting your rentals or where you're buying your tickets uh, 70 years ago was a, uh, you had cows stand in there. <laughs> um, so it, it's something definitely unique. Um, uh, and, and we love our little lodge, uh, you know, uh, upstairs here in our, my office was the hayloft at one point. Um, so it, it's, it's something very special, very unique, um, very Mount Pleasant to us. Um, it comes with its own challenges. You know, uh, it, it's, we've outgrown our lodge now. So we we're, we're looking to expand. Um, but it's definitely something different and, and something special to it. Um, and it, it's, it's served us really well, but we're definitely looking to, to expand and grow our lodge capacity. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really cool building. Um, it's a little tight in there, as you, as you mentioned. I, I noticed that you had built some fire pits and some covered areas outside. I'm not sure if those were always there, if that was in response to COVID. But just talk about your long-term vision and, and how you want to expand that thing into the future without, and, and this is the tough part, right, without compromising its character and with retaining that historical element and, and, and cool like wow factor that I had when I walked around the corner there. Yeah, that it's it's difficult, you know. Um, you mentioned the the outdoor seating and whatnot. That was in direct response to COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, anyway, when we to start the season last year, uh, we offered no indoor dining, um, and and food here is when part of a, when a teenager and comes from after school. Um, they want their French fries and their chicken tenders. Yep. <laughs> uh, so if we were going to, if we were going to feed them, we needed some sort of outdoor area for them to utilize that for. 
Um, so the outdoor seating is a direct response to that. We, we had it um, still on sunny weekend days. You go out and, and sit in the sun and, and eat a burger. Um, and the fire pits are, are pretty unique here to us. We, have a, we like to operate a lot of fireplaces and people enjoy that. Um, so those were always there. Um, but the seating definitely was in response to COVID. But we have, um, like I said, you know, our, our converted dairy barn um, is, is uh, we've utilized every square inch of space in this building that we can. Um, so we have plans for growth. Um, here in the next year or two, we want to double the lodge uh, footprint anyway. Um, but again, like being a, a, a small ski area and, and family owned, we have to do everything in very manageable steps. Um, so our goal uh, in the next year or two is to double the footprint, um, not necessarily double the square footage, because um, the first building expansion wouldn't be double story. Um, so we want to relocate the rental shop and ticket area into the new building, and the rental shop would then become uh, additional seating. Um, and then we'd, our, our goal at some point is we'd like to convert the tuning shop into a small bar. Mm, cool. Uh, but, but like you said, it, it comes with its unique challenges. People come here because of our family atmosphere. Um, and it's important that we preserve that. Um, so it, it's, we walk a fine line when we, when we're doing this. Um, you know, we've just, we had a meeting yesterday with a, uh, 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 a rental company who does software for online rental forms. Um, and right now to do, to get a ski rental, you come in, you fill it out a piece of paper, somebody stamps it paid, gives you your ticket and you go to the rental shop. Um, and part of that is it, it's, it's a slow process, but the other part of it, um, it's a personal process too. You know, you give you your wicket and your ticket and you stamp it and stamp the, the form paid and bring it over to the, to the rental shop. So it's, it's difficult to grow and expand, um, but still preserve that, um, that small mom and pop ski area mentality. So it, it's a, it's a fine line that we have to walk with every improvement, not just financially, um, but to preserve and, and, and keep our character. Um, you know, as the, the ski area seems to be, or ski industry seems to be evolving very quickly. Uh, into a very commercial based. We're trying to do everything we can to keep uh, the mom and pop family feel to it because I think that's very important. All right, Andrew, let's let's wrap up here today with a quick talk about passes. You know, you mentioned, excuse me, you mentioned the the fast evolution of the industry, and one of the areas that is evolving most rapidly is this concept of multi mountain passes and. We've seen the Indy Pass rise up out of the ether to give independent ski areas a way to band together and have a collective story to tell alongside the Epic and Icon Passes, which have obviously gotten a ton of attention from consumers for being, frankly, a very good value and offering a ton of access that would have been inconceivable 15 years ago. Have you considered either joining the Indy Pass or joining one of these other sort of reciprocal coalitions we see like the freedom pass where you get three, your pass holders get three tickets at ski area X and ski area X's pass holders get three tickets at Mount Pleasant. So have you considered either of those options as you look to the future? Yeah, it's something we would consider. Um, you know, it's not something I'm actively out shopping for. Uh, 
but I would consider consider any of those offers. You know, um, it, it's uh, we do. I think we offer a lot of value with a season pass. It's it's a uh, three fifty for uh, adults, two ninety five for students. So I think there's a lot of, of value there. But anything we could do to give that pass even more value would be big for us. Um, so it's something we would definitely consider doing, but it's not something that we're, we're actively marketing either. You know, a lot of our season pass holders are locals. You know, they, they, they live in Edinburgh or Cambridge Springs right down the road. Um, and, you know, they might make a trip somewhere every year, but that trip might just be Holiday Valley, um, or Seven Springs or something like that. Um, so we were able to, to keep skiing affordable, um, like that and, and offer it to a different clientele. So I'm not sure that uh, we're, it would be marketable to most people, um, but it's something that we're always looking into uh, to expand and give our season pass holders just a little bit more uh, bang for their buck, if you will. Mm-hmm. And when do your 2022 to 23 season passes go on sale, Andrew? Uh, we opened them up just last week. Amazing. Um, yeah, so it's the same price. We've been able to keep the the season pass price has been, you know, it's been plus or minus twenty bucks for since Doug and Laura owned it in or bought it in two thousand six. So wow. the, the price hasn't really changed a whole lot. Um, they're on sale now, and what we're offering um, people is it's the same price year round. You know, it's whether you buy it today or you buy it uh, next fall. The only thing we will offer people now, uh, you could pay half now and see the rest of March and then pay the other half uh, in the fall and get the next year. Oh, uh, cool. So same price. We just, we try to break it up a little bit. Uh, it's again, you know, being a small ski area, we make it affordable for a lot of young families where skiing might not be something that they could do at every ski area. Um, so it's nice to be able to break that up. Uh, if you got a family of four and you got to put almost 300 bucks down for each person, that's a lot uh, right around Christmas time to be buying four season passes. So it's nice if we could split it up now and they get the rest of this year um, and then all next year as well. All right. Well, I will be sure to include a link to that in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. Andrew, I cannot thank you enough. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I really like Mount Pleasant. I, I love your vision for it. I love the path you're on and the energy around the place. I hope that you are able to continue to evolve Mount Pleasant well, well into the future. And I can't wait to come out there and ski with you again, hopefully next season, once my leg is back in one piece. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it was a pleasure chatting with you, Stuart. Um, It was nice to be able to pencil this into my calendar to to sit down and chat skiing for now almost two hours. So it's uh, (laughs) a... Uh, it's not something that I normally get to do and I've really enjoyed it. And, um, um, I'm glad you, you see her and, and enjoy our vision and I can't wait for you to come back and hopefully, uh, see the improvements. And I'll make the point here, Andrew, uh, that we were originally supposed to record this two days, three days after I broke my leg. And so I think you were the first person after my wife to know that I had broken my leg <laughs> and my season was over because I sent you a text from the hospital saying, uh, Hey bud, I don't think this is going to happen on Monday. <laughs> So thank you for your patience and understanding, and I'm so glad we can make this happen this season. No, absolutely, Stuart. Um, Yeah, I hope hope you recover well, and uh, you'll be making turns again next year. That's Andrew Halmy, General Manager of Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. 
Andrew, that was an absolute pleasure. He reached out to me on Facebook maybe a year ago, and that place was totally off my radar at the time. Look, I live in New York, so I do a lot of Pennsylvania skiing, a lot of Eastern Pennsylvania skiing, a lot of Southeastern Pennsylvania skiing, but Western Pennsylvania is way out of my daily range. Mount Pleasant is farther from me than JP. So it was gonna be a while before I got out there, but Andrew fast forwarded that process and I am really glad he did. So we've been trying to make that happen for a really, really long time. And in my opinion, that was one of the best conversations that we've ever had on the storm. You know what really struck me about talking to Andrew though? When I talk to a lot of people who run ski areas, it feels like they're on the rung of a ladder. Like they're putting everything that they have into that job, but they don't necessarily feel like it's their forever gig. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Ambition is admirable, and it's pretty normal for people to want to keep striving. But I'll tell you what, I did not get that feeling at all with Andrew. He is in this. 1,000% of that dude is locked into making Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh the best possible version of Mount Pleasant of Edinburgh. And that's not to say that the guy doesn't have ambition or doesn't want to grow and evolve. But in his case, the sense that I got was that those desires are locked into Mount Pleasant rather than being locked into himself. That place is a part of him and it is obvious in every word of that conversation. I really, really love that, Andrew. Amazing job. And thank you to all of you for listening. Here's what I have ahead for you. Beaver Week, when I will host both Beaver Mountain, Utah and Beaver Creek, Colorado on back-to-back -back days. Do not ask me how that happened. It was not intentional. It's just one of those strange coincidences of the universe. Then I have conversations lined up with the leaders of Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, Montana, Summit at Snoqualmie, Washington, Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire, and Arapahoe Basin, Colorado. And here is a sneak peek for those of you who actually listen to all two hours of this thing. I just booked a fall podcast with Sun Valley, Idaho, General Manager Pete Sontag. That's not until September, so I'm not heavily promoting it yet, but needless to say, I am pumped for that one. Remember to please visit stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter, where I am exploring the world of lift served skiing all year long. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.